Hello and welcome to Passing Shots, presented by Pro 10 International in association with the MLJ Group. Today is Tuesday, the 15th of April. I'm your host, Pete Zebron, and alongside with me today is CEO of the MLJ Group, Sandy Middleman. Good evening, Sandy. Good evening, Pete. Great to be back. Yes, indeed. And uh, we would like to remind everyone you can call the show at 347-637-1197. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10Radio and on Facebook.com slash Pro10Radio. We'll take your questions any way you'd like to reach us. You can also log on to Pro10Radio.com for all the podcasts and future show information. And this evening, Sandy, we have author Bobby Blair, who wrote the book Hiding Inside the Baseline. Bobby has not yet joined us on the line, but uh, when he does, we'll we'll introduce him properly. But uh, at the moment, Sandy... Day three of the Rolex Masters in Monte Carlo, Monaco, and uh, interesting, for the first time since 2011, Roger Federer is in the field. He accepted a wild card into the, into the main draw, but uh, Roger must be feeling pretty darn good about uh, himself, his, his health, his body, his game for him to, uh, to play a tournament that he loves, but uh, has obviously uh, skipped the last couple of years. Yeah, Pete. Um, as you mentioned, uh, he just recently, in the last couple of days, few days, took a, you know accepted a wild card. Um, so um, you know, two things obviously uh, sort of you know kind of reach out to me. One is, well, first, was he offered one and asked to come, or did he reach? Did, did his team reach out? You know, and request one. Who knows? But nevertheless, he's got a wild card. It's great that he's there. Um, it shows that he feels good. He's healthy. He's eager. And he's trying to get himself in the best preparation uh, for, you know, the swing up to Roland, you know, Roland Garros. So that's just great news for fans. And he's got an interesting first-round match. He's got a first-round match tomorrow with Roddick Stefanik. Um, and we all know how Roddick likes to play, which is sort of that uh, sort of unique uh, style from back in the day with a little bit different forehand grip and, you know, attack at, you know, at all costs when he can. And he plays energetic and so it should be interesting, definitely in a clay court. It's a different style, and he's probably going to try to not give Roger, you know, like so much just sort of backcourt rhythm. So, yeah, definitely be interesting to check that out tomorrow, and it's just great that Roger, obviously, it's better than ever Roger shows up. Alex Stepanek, uh, he has beaten Roger Federer twice uh, on clay, so uh, knows how to get the job done there. And um, who knows, this could be a potential uh, Davis Cup final uh, matchup uh, that we could see come uh, near the end of the year. Uh, nice, intriguing twist uh, with uh, both Switzerland and the Czech Republic, just uh, one win away from reaching the Davis Cup final in, in 2014. But, uh, yep, second round match tomorrow, second up on the main court in Monte Carlo, Roger Federer and Roddick Stepanek. And, uh, couple other guys obviously that are going to get uh staying in um staying in rogers half sandy uh obviously novak djokovic the defending champ who ended rafael nadal's eight year reign in monte carlo quite a uh quite an effort by novak in fact you know it really looked uh, promising for him that he was going to parlay that win into possibly winning roland garros and probably should have won that match uh i've been uh, talked about quite a bit with the uh, with the net incident, but uh, what do you what do you think about Novak uh, in his quest to repeat and uh, uh, again have to get past probably Roger Federer in the uh, in the semi there? Yeah, Pete. I mean, I, I think it's I think it's an interesting actually time for Novak. 
um, you know, for a multitude of different reasons. You know, the obvious sort of uh, beaten to death, if you will, conversation since the beginning of the year with Coach Boris Becker sort of taking over the helm. Um, ironically, the one tournament Novak won this year when he beat Roger 7-6 in the third in the final in Indian Wells. Ironically, Boris wasn't there, and Murray and Vida stepped in. It is duties and got the win. So that's kind of all sort of good and tasteful for the media to kind of play with and wrap around their fingers a little bit. Um, but, yeah, I mean, with Novak, I, I think it's interesting because keep in mind that as successful and great as he's been over the last few years, the one slam he hasn't won is the French. So with that being said, you, with that being said, you then come on thinking, okay, is he going to play loose starting in Monte Carlo with that in mind, or is he going to feel the tension all the way through because he hasn't had quite the lead-up results? What are your thoughts on that, Pete? Yeah, I, the biggest surprise for me is he's just got the uh... – you know, he just had the one win earlier in the year that obviously uh, did did great things at both Indian Wells uh, and Miami. But um, yeah, I, I agree. the The whole coaching dichotomy dynamics of uh, of Boris there, it you know, as uh, as tennis players know, it's it's a fine line, a few points here or there, and that's that's why he brought Boris in. Uh, stressed the fact that it is a long term uh, relationship and. Uh, Remains to be seen. Interesting times uh, in the life and career of Novak Djokovic, obviously playing playing well. I don't think Boris would be uh, sticking around uh, or Novak would have any part of him uh, anymore if, if there weren't some pluses being uh, being brought into that camp. He's got, by the way, Sandy, uh, he won a uh, match today, 6-1, 6-love over Albert Montañez of Spain, a, a tricky clay court customer but uh, looming in his uh, looming in his side uh, in his quarter he'd probably have Tomas Burdich who uh, is playing some good ball and then probably Roger Federer after that but um, yep Novak uh, is in a good place right now and uh, we'll see if he can defend coming up and most likely the gentleman that he would have to beat in order to get to uh, his second consecutive Monte Carlo Masters would be Rafael Nadal who is sitting on top of the draw in the top half Probably looking at a uh, Ferrer semifinal, but uh, your thoughts on on uh, the King of Clay uh, looking to uh, looking to be a challenger at this tournament? Surprisingly. Yeah, I mean, with you know, look, I mean, with Roth, as long as Roth is playing the game, unless somehow he shows up and he's on crutches and in a wheelchair and can't move his left leg or right leg, I mean, he's obviously going to be considered the favorite. I would I would think that you'd agree with that, and I think everybody else sees it that way. But you know, look. Rafa steps on the court on any clay court and somehow he transforms from being feeling like he's part of a home to feeling like he actually owns the place, you know, uh, lock, stock, and barrel. So confidence grows an all-time high. And, you know, it's it's an interesting – well, it's an interesting year for him and sort of period of time in tournament because, you know, when you're going for nine, the ninth tournament, I mean, you know, I, like, listen, anybody goes for the second one, that's a big thing. But to go for the ninth one – um, in such a big historical event like Monte Carlo, I mean, that, that's massive in itself. Then you know that the last time you played Novak, he had his way with you in a final. Um, that plays on your mind. Um, you know, Novak's the one guy in the nine years that stopped your, you know, your sort of streak in the same tournament. Um, you also go into the tournament, if you do get on the court with him at some point in the final, 
it gets to that point, you also step on the court knowing that those two things have happened, plus the fact that, you know, I mean, look, it's, it's no doubt that Rafa knows that he was in some ways lucky to escape that French Open, you know, French Open match. Um, you know, that kind of had him by the throat, and then a couple things here and there, and the match changed. So, you know, Rafa's got some hang-ups with Novak. Um, but, look, until somebody steps up and beats Rafa in these tournaments, you know, he's just obviously like every other time. You know, he's still the man to beat. Um, but it, it's definitely going to be an interesting period of time for Rafa going through to Roland Garros this year. I think we'd all agree on that, simply because the way the year started – even though he's been playing well and had some wins. But, you know, Rafa's simply measured the same way Novak's measured, the same way, you know, the same way Rogers measured. They're measured by essentially the identity of two different levels of tournaments, Masters 1000 and Plan. Apart from that, they're just become, a, they're just become extra typing on the resume. But other than that, that's not what they're measured by everything else. So, it, it's you know, it, it'll be interesting, but... You know, like I said, he's the favorite. Until someone steps up and takes him out, he's a rough customer. Yeah, and looking at the draw again, uh, all valid points there, and uh, agree wholeheartedly with your analysis there, Sandy. You know, looking at the draw, uh, it's like Groundhog Day in Monte Carlo. No Americans in the main draw. Well, John Isner would yeah. be the only one who would be able to be in the main draw, but. Uh, you know, I wrote about this on Tennis Acumen a couple of years ago and uh, the fact that, the, you know, why do the Americans skip this tournament uh, year in and year out? Donald Young played it, I think, because he, you know, had some pretty good results uh, a few years ago. Then he got direct entry into that. But, um, you know, this is, the, uh, this is a big tournament, obviously, a Masters 1000. A lot of points involved, a lot of money, but one of the most beautiful places on the planet. And, um, you know... The Americans failed to show up for this, and this is, you know, tremendous preparation for a, a major tournament, Sandy, Roland Garros. Uh, yes, that is one of the uh, four majors, and uh, this is a big tournament leading up to it. Your thoughts on uh, the fact that, uh, well, Isner obviously is, would be the only one, but in years past, any clue as to why the, the Yanks just uh, blow this tournament off year in and year out? Well... If you want my honest answer, I think it comes down to two things. Number one, they're, it's no secret that the Americans don't, can't, for the most part, you know, given the, the majority, the consensus, okay, they'd rather be playing on pretty much anything else but clay. But if they're going to play on clay, they'd rather be playing somewhere where, number one, they can read the language and the signs, and number two, is pretty much 90% of the players next to them in the draw are from the same country, which means they're as uncomfortable as them. So you go to Monte Carlo, you all of a sudden can't read the signs, and you got all these guys that are the best in the world there that basically live and feast and make their living on the red dirt and are so comfortable. And, you know, last but not least, it's been no secret that the Americans like to do one thing, which is stay stateside, as long as they possibly can. And the idea of going to Europe, to Monte Carlo, going there for, you know, getting there four or five days ahead to prepare, being in Monte Carlo for a week, then Madrid, then, then you know, bar, all these tournaments, right, the boom, 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 all the way up to Roland Garros, then, you know, then Queens, and then Wimbledon? Are you kidding me? That's like, you know, it's like we can't leave the United States for two and a half months. What are we going to do? So... This is, the, this is the, the humorous side of it, but also the professional concern, if you will. 
okay? Because the Europeans, the Asians, the South Americans, everybody else in the world has got no problem coming to the States for as long as need be to perform at their best and be at a different level. That's a fact based upon the history of the game, especially in the recent years. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, John Isner is a completely different player when he when he plays in the United States uh, compared to anywhere else. Uh, anybody beating a top ten player, John Isner, outside of North America, oh, you know, we've seen that. It, it's not that surprising, and uh, it's it it is. You know, you said about the language, but uh, I I don't know. You know, the French uh, French Open, uh, Roland Garros, obviously all the. Uh, the score is set in French first, as it should be. But um, I, just Sandy, I mentioned this just a little while ago, um, not not including last year. But I wrote this on Tennis Acumen in t- 2012. Donald Young was only the third American to play the Monte Carlo Rolex Masters since 2004. You ready for this? 2012, Donald Young. 2011, 10 and 9, nobody played. 2008, Sam Querrey played. Actually, won two rounds that year. <laughs> 2006 and 7, nobody played. 2005, Vince Spadia entered the main draw. And 2004, nobody. So uh, Donald Young, only the third American in 2012 to play uh, since between 2004 and 2012. Boy, I, you know, if I had, uh, I, I would go, if I were a player, an American player, and, you know, got direct entry into the qualifying draw, that, this is a no-brainer for me uh, to be able to tune up. And, uh, and for those guys who, who, you know, absolutely have to get back to the U.S., guess what? They can, uh, they can fly back. There's a little bit of a buffer between the end of this tournament and, uh, you know, and, and Rome coming up. So it's not like you're going to Australia. There, there's uh, the ability to do that if, uh, if you're based in the East Coast. So, uh, yeah, a little, little disappointing that we, uh, we don't see I mean, there's two Canadians. You know, Raonic and Pospisil are there. Uh, <laughs> so uh, our continent is represented by those guys. But uh, I don't know. It, it's, what's that? No, I was just saying it's, it's kind of funny. Our friends, north, our friends north of the border. Yeah, and what we're going to do, like we always do, we're going to try and claim them, but uh, that's not going to work this time around. But uh, any dark horses that you see in uh, in the Monte Carlo draw at this time, Sandy? I, um, you know, Burdich has had a very good year. Unfortunately for him, he's most likely going to have uh, Djokovic in his quarterfinal. So uh, he he plays some very good tennis against everybody. In fact, you know, if you look at the the list of majors and who he's exited to in a major. It's deep in the tournament, and it's to usually one of the top four guys in the world. Uh, but any any thoughts? Obviously, we see some different names in this tournament, some some clay court specialists. But uh, you know, we talked a little bit about Roger Novak and Rafael Nadal. But anybody else, uh, in your opinion, who's playing some good ball? We talked about Fognini uh, and his ability on the clay courts uh, and what he did to Andy Murray uh, a couple weeks ago. That was impressive. But your thoughts on? somebody who might be able to make some noise and uh, create a stir at Monte Carlo. Yeah, Pete, I mean, like, just, you know, as we talk, as we're on the air talking about all this stuff in the draw, I'm kind of scrolling through the draw and kind of picking it apart a little bit. And, you know, a couple names sort of stand out, and I think they've been pretty familiar names in our conversations, both on the air and off with you and I kind of talking through the draws on a weekly basis. The, the obvious one for me that stands out is very quickly – in the top half, which is Dimitrov. And that guy is just, you know, that guy is just playing ball. Um, and the interesting thing about his first-round win 
if you look at it, and you know, I'm, you know, I kind of bleed this game, as you all know, based upon conversations with me. So I pick apart everything based on sets and scores and who they play and what surface and what it might represent or mean, you know, kind of down the line in the draw. And he wins first round six two four six six two. So with his first match on clay in a Masters 1000, in a big, massive tournament like Monte Carlo, he starts off strong, has obviously a seemingly little bit of a, a hiccup, if you will, with the 4-6 in the middle, and then he obviously finishes strong. So that just tells me he's feeling, you know, he's feeling pretty confident on the dirt. Um, so that's great. But I think, you know, we will look at Dimitrov, um, you know, Fognini, I mean, again, uh, Fabio, look, comes in, loses the first set, has to battle himself to get through the second set, and then battle himself to get to the third. So instead of looking at it negatively, like he only won 6-4 in a third and the other two sets were tight, I look at it as positively. Why? Because he, most importantly, he won the match, which is the bottom line. And secondly is that he was mentally tough enough and he hung in there and got the job done. So Fabio is one to watch for sure. I mean, at the moment, it's hard to discount Burdick because Burdick's just playing good ball pretty much every week. So you got Burdick. And then if you're going to throw sort of a kicker in there for good humor that you never can kind of discount if he gets really going and is confident, well, look, you got to throw in Dolgopolov because he's been playing fantastic. And, you know, he won first round. And, um, and then also you got to throw in the human highlight reel, Gael Monfils. You never know what that guy can do on a dirt court. Um, I mean, he slides like, you know, like he's on ice skates on a hard court, for God's sake. You put him on a clay court, he may end up in the fifth row because he can't stop. That's how good his slides are. So, um, you know, so if we broke down that list, we got Monfils Dolgopolov. We got Burdick is an obvious choice to be in there. Then, as I mentioned, Salgini's playing tough, and he's mentally got things together now for the first time in a while. And as I mentioned, in the top of that, you know, that sort of soiree of players, You've got Dimitrov, and Dimitrov for me is just a standout future top five, top three potential Grand Slam winner. So, you know, who, you know, who knows what next jump he takes. Yeah, I want to ask you about, uh, uh, we've talked about a lot of guys having success, and this is, uh, this is a head-scratcher to me. We talked a little bit about what uh, he wasn't able to accomplish at, uh, in the Davis Cup, but this is uh, someone who is a semi-finalist last year who gave Andy Murray all that he could handle in that semi. In my opinion, probably should have won the match if it were anywhere but played in England. Jersey Janowitz, uh, you know, a couple of uh, head-scratching losses in Davis Cup play against Croatia, losing to uh, number 295 in the world and then losing a two-set to love lead uh, against uh, Cilic. Uh, you know, that's not all that surprising, but the fact that he was up two sets to love in Warsaw, Poland is. Today, uh, Sandy, uh, Janowitz, uh, very disappointing loss uh, to qualifier Michael Lodra, 6-4, Obviously, Lodra, a t- tricky customer, but, I mean, Janowitz is, uh, boy, he's going he's gonna to go down elevator shaft if he doesn't get it together fairly soon with uh, a boatload of points to defend uh, at Wimbledon as well. Um, you're, what uh, five-match losing streak now for Janowitz. Um, your, your thoughts on... Uh, on how you know how this has happened to this guy, and as I as I heard a little bit on on TV, uh, the fact that you know in in the, in the sport of tennis, it, it takes a while to be able to build up 
to to have the confidence to be able to compete confidence in yourself confidence in your game it's a gradual process to build that up but you know a point here a point there or even a match and all that can shatter and come crashing down and it takes a while to build that back up your opinion of where where Janowitz is uh with respect to his game at this point in time well i mean Look, he, he made a sudden out of absolutely nowhere rise when he started all of a sudden coming out. You know, he got to, he clawed in Paris, got to the final to lose to Ferrer, which is obviously everybody knows Ferrer's lone standout Master Series win with uh, the heavy absence of uh, the players that we got him, basically owned those tournaments for 10 years. Um, you know, look, I mean, there's no doubt what Jersey Janowitz is capable of doing. Like on good days, okay, uh, you know what? Six eight, the guy moves like a gazelle around the court, serves like out of a tree. Um, so he's no fun to play for anybody. Um, but I think there's sort of a two part issue with him. Now again, look, it, this is simply a, just a viewpoint because I don't know him, never met him, don't know how he works, don't know you know, don't know his team. So without getting insider information to be critical or you know or complimentary, it's simply an opinion. But he's lost five matches in a row. That's never good for anybody's confidence, no matter how much you've won or who you are, how much money you've made. Uh, but the good thing is is that he's nowhere near the ultimate record of Vince Fabian, 21 consecutive first-round losses. So he's got a heck of a long way to go before he gets in that category. Um, but look, I mean, you know, I, I think that Jersey's position losing for five first-round matches, as you mentioned, I think it's just sort of another indicator of – you know, how sort of, like you mentioned, how sort of fragile, if you will, the, the, the psyche and confidence of an indi- individual sport like tennis, you know, of the athlete can actually really be. I mean, people take it like kind of like, oh, yeah, it's okay. You know what I mean? They'll get back on track. You know, they're too good not to win, right? Well, it's not that simple. It's just really not that simple, especially when you think about what you were doing before and you got this guy that can serve like 140 miles an hour. You think, how can't this guy hold serve? But, you know, there's, there's so many things going into those either wins or, like you said, some of those matches that suddenly, you know, you have a couple chances, you lose a match. You have another match with chance, you know what I mean? You lose it, all of a sudden you're, like, questioning yourself every day when maybe you shouldn't be, but you are. It's natural. So I think, as you mentioned, it takes some of the players years, literally years, three, four, five years, working their way up, building up their confidence, and also a very important thing, which is, learning how to deal with losing. That's like a really big factor, learning how to deal with losing, because quite honestly, I think it's a lot harder to learn how to deal with losing than understand what's happening when you're winning, okay? Because you have much more positive energy when you're winning, and even though there's more expectation, as you you and I have talked about, um, you get in that situation where you're losing and you start questioning yourself. You won't only be losing because you made one mistake at the wrong time, but... That may be the one thing you can't get out of your head. Like, why did I make And then when it comes to that moment in another match, you're going to do the same thing maybe over or think about it, right? So, look, there's no question that Jersey should be probably putting more matches together successfully, but it might just take that one sort of unusual match, right, where he's got a tough one out and, you know, get a little bit lucky or have the guy, you know, double fault with the wrong, you know, you know one of those types of situations where then he can sort of take a breather. And, you know, one of the conversations you and I have had about sort of the difference between confidence 
and release. Because when you've lost a lot of matches in a row, you're looking more for the win. And then when you get that win, instead of feeling confident, you're feeling like, oh, thank God I got through one match, right? So it's more relief. Then if you start to win another match and then another match, then you start to build the sense of confidence and belief again. But, look, I got no doubt. I don't know about you, but I got no doubt that Jersey Janowitz will most likely be back, be strong, be confident, and be very, very scary and uncomfortable. But we have seen him in the past, like sort of mentally and emotionally, implode, if you will, on the court visually. So maybe, who knows, maybe he's just deep down inside. He's fighting some serious, like, you know, like self-awareness and self-belief issues. And, you know, look, the guy is not alone. If you look around the corner, you're going to find another player. They might not have lost five matches in a row, but they have some some self-doubt. So, you know, hopefully for Jersey, he's got some pretty great team around him, which is really, really important. Team that's positive, spirited, believes in him. And, look, 6'8", moves like a gazelle, hits a ton ton on the shots and a big serve. He should get out of it soon. That's the way I see it. Yeah, great points. Great point. Too. Way too much talent not to uh, not to come charging back. We'll see uh, if that uh, happens in the clay court season or a bit later in the year. And, Sandy, with that, we're going to come up on our first break, and when we come back we'll talk about a couple of the all-Spanish finals on the men's side that we had over the weekend as well as some surprise winners on the women's side. And, you know what? You never know what you get on passing shots, Sandy. We all, we all, we actually referenced Vince Spadia twice in the first segment, and Andy Murray only once. So uh, stick around. <laughs> you know, you never know what you can get on uh, two of passing shots on the Pro Ten Radio Network. We'll be back after this. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. To celebrate the not normal Mini Cooper, we hired an expert to tell you about Mini telepathically. Greetings. Relax and listen to my mind. The Mini Cooper hardtop comes with 37 MPG and co-cart handling. Wait, that's not telepathy. Listen again. The bigger four-door Mini Countryman has seating for five. Okay, you're just whispering. You're still paying me for this. Come see the 37 MPG Mini Cooper hardtop and the bigger Mini Countryman today. Visit miniusa.com slash info for MPG details. Awaken the tennis player you dream of being. Tennis 365 presents... The official Tennis 365 app for educational purpose, tennis entertainment, news, and tournaments. Based on the knowledge of international tennis coaches in USA and Europe. Whether you just picked up a racket or are getting ready to make a move to the pros, Tennis 365 has a tip for you. Tennis 365 provides one new educational tip every day for a year. Save your top 10 and call them before a match or use them to help during training. Keep track of your favorite players year-round with instant access to every tournament throughout the year. Download your app today. Hi, this is Johan Crick, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Denise Basic is a real Geico customer, not a paid celebrity. So to help tell her story, we hired a celebrity. It was Thanksgiving night when I accidentally hit a deer. Whoa, look out, look out! I called Geico expecting to get a recording, but someone was there to help me. Help me! Somebody help me! Geico got my claim in the works right away, and I was actually able to enjoy my Thanksgiving. Mashed potatoes, gravy, and 
Geico. Real service, real savings. Get the most out of your game with the best selection of Nike gear from TennisExpress.com. Play to win in the Roger Federer Premier RF Polo and Twill Short with matching Zoom Vapor 9 Tour shoes. Check out the Maria Sharapova Premier Maria Tank and Skirt and high-performance Nike Zoom Vapor 9 Tour shoes. Sizzle on every surge like Victoria Azarenka in the dry-fed woven tank and the woven pleated skirt with Zoom Vapor 9 Tour shoes. Shop all new Nike gear for fall at TennisExpress.com. Welcome back to Passing Shots, presented by the Pro 10 Radio Network. Pete Zebron, alongside CEO of the MLJ Group, Sandy Middleman. Sandy, back for segment number two here. And we had some WTA finals uh, that were very interesting. Uh, Lisa Cornet defeated Camilla Giorgi in three long sets in Poland, as well as Caroline Garcia defeating, upsetting Yelena Yankovic in uh, Bogota, Colombia. Uh, let's start talking off, uh, start off with the uh, Lisa Cornet Georgie match. Yeah, Pete. Um, I actually, uh, I actually watched that one, the entire match, um, actually online, with uh, some, you know, obviously a great interest, and um, uh, you know, it was, it was a pretty interesting match actually, because it, it kind of encapsulated, if you will, um, uh, Camila's rhythm in matches losing groups of games or winning groups of games and, you know, sort of having these big momentum swings for the good and the bad. Um, you know, she, she hung in there. She fought. She's a pretty mentally tough girl. But interestingly enough in that match, Camila actually found herself after being, you know, pretty close a couple times, you know, to being out of the match in the third. She actually found herself at a championship point. So in her first ever WTA final, she found herself at championship point. And, she got a she got a serve on the ad court from Cornet, and there was one thing that I found fascinating at that moment, and that was the fact that Camila is an ultra super aggressive player, both physically and mentally. She just flat out goes after it, and she was just ripping returns all place, and she played defensively. She took a step back and kind of looked like she tried to roll the ball deep down the middle and missed it long and sort of had this look on her face like, why didn't you step up and hit it? You know, she kind of gestured with her body, and I thought, you know what? At the, at the one moment that it mattered most, she got scared. And I, and I was honestly, it wasn't even for me the fact that she lost the match. It was the fact that that moment was the reason why she lost. And I was shocked because, if anything, she does the exact opposite. She goes bigger. She goes harder. She makes mistakes that way where you question it as a, as a coach, a fan, an observer, you know, a supporter of Camilla Georgie in her game. And you say, why does she go for so much, right? Why does she just pull back a little bit and get the ball on the court, let the girl miss? Next thing you know, she got a championship point in her first ever WTA final. And what does she do? She does the exact opposite of what she's known for. So that was actually kind of interesting and, you know, obviously important. And the other thing, too, 
was it had to be mostly mental. Why? Because she lost to Cornet in the Aussie Open first round in a three-set battle after having multiple opportunities. So that maybe sat in her mind a little bit too. But you know what? Um, that one's going to sting a little bit for Camilla. She worked her way to the final, first WTA final. That's what you're dreaming about, working for every day. She gets to the final. Not only does she do that, she battles her butt off, gets to the match point, the championship point, against the girl that she just lost the battle to in Australia, and she gets ultra passive. At the one moment, she needs to be exactly the way she's gotten there, and, yeah, she doesn't do it. So it'll be interesting to see how she comes out. And plus, you know, she's playing on a surface that just is kind of basically almost tailored for her game. You know, so it, it was interesting. What were your thoughts, Pete, as you kind of saw the results and, you know, watched a little bit and all that? Well, I've been very impressed with uh, Camilla's uh, run through that tournament. Uh, and uh, Cornet is a tough customer. Uh, I've seen her play a, a handful of times live and uh, real fighter out there. And so all credit to Camilla Georgie for getting all the way to the final, a point away, like you said, Sandy, from, from winning. And, uh, I, I, I think uh, it's going to be uh, upward mobility for uh, Camilla at this point in time, making some good progress out there uh, on the tour. And uh, one question I have for you, uh, because you know her fairly well and working with her in the past, Sandy, is it's almost sort of like, uh, you know, trying to learn how to ride a bike. You fall off, uh, you should get right back on right away. But, you know, especially, as you mentioned, a tough opponent uh, that she just lost to not too long ago at a major here, this this isn't a final, but uh, okay, this is one person I'm having trouble defeating. But what uh, you know, if you were working with her at this point in time, coming so close, obviously there's there's disappointment there. But but what's a game plan? What's a strategy? Uh, what do you take away from that going into the very next tournament? Is and is your preparation any different? No, I mean you know if I look back to the you know the multitude of tournaments that I was with you know, Camilla years ago, um, and obviously at a vastly different level, meaning, you know, starting on the challengers and working her way up to the, you know, to the big leagues um, when she would lose matches. Um, you know, I feel like with Camilla, in this particular situation, because I think it's vastly different being your first actual double UTA final, and then more importantly, it's three sets. Another factor is that you just lost to the same girl in a tight three-set match, you know, uh, the, the, the big one of the biggest tournaments of the year starting off here in Australian Open. And then to topple that, you have the ultimate factor, which is you actually had a championship point and a makeable wall. So if you take away some of those factors, you look at it one way, but with all those uh, put, put in sort of the mix or the stew, if you will, uh, I give her a little time to kind of just, you know, kind of deal with it in her own emotion because she's obviously not thrilled about it, um, about losing when you have the match point. But I would just say, look, Here's the deal. You did everything right, okay? You did what any pro tennis player ever at any level is asked to do, which is give yourself the best chance to win. And she gave herself a championship point. So that, that's what you that, – yeah, sure, there's sub parts of every match that could have been better and, you know, make less mistakes or less double – you know, all those things that you always talk about. But at the end of the day – you did what your job is. Your job is to give yourself a chance to win the tournament. And you gave yourself a chance. So the, the, only thing, other, only the other thing I might say is let's take it one step at a time, starting next week or whichever tournament she plays, 
and let's just try to build on great momentum of many wins and almost another one, a full tournament win, and then see, let's go and keep that momentum and sort of build on that like you said, right? Okay? And then if we get, that's obviously if because it's not easy to get back to that sort of almost mountaintop, if we get back to that moment where we get that championship point or that, that moment, what do we do? We go after it. We take the winning or the losing into our own hands. We don't play a ball that's against our character and our makeup, and we don't play a ball that where it looks like we're hoping that if we make it, they miss because you don't play any matches or games like that, okay? So that would be the one thing I'd take away. And if Camila is a going-to-be or has a true kind of mental or true sort of champion makeup, if you will, in her mind, she will take it. She'll be proud of it. She'll feel good about it. She won't be satisfied with it because the goal is to win, not to come one point short. And she'll move on and she'll do nothing but, like you said, get positive upward momentum. And kind of like if you think about it, what better time of the year? She's in Europe. She's, you know, she's where she's from, right? So she's got that sort of comfort level. And then she's moving into sort of that magical month and a half of the European clay court swing, Roland Garros, and Wimbledon. So she could essentially make it a career sort of jump and breaking, you know, sort of period of time. And let's not forget, she didn't win the tournament, and yet she went from, I believe, 64 or 5 to 53 or 54, if my memory serves me correctly, when I looked quickly yesterday morning. Um, So she's nearly entering the top 50 for the first time. So I can't imagine there's anything really negative to say, you know. It's all good. Yeah, yeah, great points. And uh, she is – she is on our home continent, and uh, a lot of uh, a lot of opportunities coming up with a couple of majors and and, and lead-in tournaments to uh, to Roland Garros. Uh, more, plenty of opportunities to gain points. Speaking of that, Sandy um, Caroline Garcia, uh, someone that uh, Andy Murray tabbed to be a future number one after she played Maria Sharapova very tough in, at Roland Garros a few years ago. Uh, defeated uh, someone who's been playing some very serious uh, solid tennis this year, Yelena Yankovic, beat her 3-4 and four in Bogota, Colombia. Uh, I'm always a fan of any tournament in South America because there are so few of them. But uh, all credit to uh, Caroline Garcia. And I, I think, you know, the French especially have been waiting for this day for quite some time, uh, seeing one of their young stars uh, competing pretty hard on the tournament. She sort of meandered in and out of the top 100, disappeared, if you will, for a little while. But... Uh, Right back on everybody's radar now, and again uh, coming into the uh, into the clay court season, and obviously a uh, a major in her backyard coming up fairly soon. Your your thoughts on um, Caroline Garcia uh, being able to take down Yankovic uh, in Colombia over the weekend? Yeah, Pete. Um, yeah, we we've actually talked about her with uh, Caroline actually recently a few times um, on the shows in the last like month and a half. And look, that girl's a talent. That girl can really play. I mean, she's been on the court with the best players in the world recently, and she's either won matches or she's um, basically said, here I am, that kind of attitude, right? Like, I can play with you. I may not beat you today, but I'm coming. I'm getting better, and I'm pushing you to play good tennis to actually beat me. Matter of fact, it wasn't too long ago when she was on a hard court, I believe, in Miami where she played Serena, if you will, Um, and, you know, she didn't win the match. But then how many people beat Serena, right? So she's not alone in that circumstance. 
But she certainly, there were moments and patches in that match when you simply said, wow, this girl can really play. Um, if I break down the Garcia-Yankovic match, I kind of keep it pretty simple. Um, you know, Yelena's got a backhand, a world-class backhand, um, you know, good forehand, uh, great mover, which is probably what she's best known for, loves to change direction of the ball. Um, she's a bit of a fighter out there, a little kind of pit bull with the attitude out there. She'll dig in. Um, and Garcia, look, I mean, she's, a, you know, she's got hands. She's got, you know, some speed. Um, she's a talent. And, you know, she's, and she's got the most important thing that she's sort of starting to build on, which is she's gaining confidence because of good play competitive results against the best players and then some, you know, some periodic moments with real wins. So, you know, a, a win over Jankovic, quite honestly, doesn't surprise me um, because she plays well enough. She's got the skill set, the game, the, the hitting ability, the variety, okay? Um, and actually, to be honest with you, Pete, I'm going to throw a name out there for you and just sort of do a little recall, okay, if you will, in French tennis. In some ways... Caroline Garcia reminds me a touch of she being a two-handed version of Moresmo um, because Moresmo was pretty darn talented. He kind of had all the all the shots, all the craft, all the feel, um, but obviously with the noticeable difference in having a one-handed backhand and using a really nice slice. But yeah, I mean, yeah, Caroline's got so many things going for, her. and on top of that. I kind of think when you watch her play, she makes it look pretty easy. So, um, yeah, all um, for me, a lot of nothing but good things to look for from Caroline Garcia, you know, kind of moving forward, getting more experience, and uh, getting a little bit older. So, yeah, it's good stuff. Yeah, I, I just uh, – very valid points. I just hope that she doesn't uh, have another trait like uh, Amelie Moresmo does too and uh, not being able to compete very well in uh, at Roland Garros because uh, fr- it's going to be a different uh, different story for her coming in regardless of how she fares in all the other lead-up tournaments to Roland Garros because she did get this one uh, on Sunday. So uh, uh, we wish you all the best, Caroline Garcia, and on the court as well as uh, – coming in uh, to your legions of fans and uh, at Roland Garros coming up in a, in a little bit. Uh, Sandy, we've got a couple of other uh, men's finals to talk about. We're going to get to those after a break, and uh, we'll talk about what happened in Casablanca as well as Houston, Texas, when we come back after this. The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently, but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh, oh, nice. Giddiness. You get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right?
Taking a family of five to the amusement park can cost a small fortune. Oh, yeah. So to save some money, we thought, hey, let's bring the amusement park to us. Yeah. Go ahead. All right. Uh, step right up. Step right up, young man. Are you ready to ride the Wacky Waterfall? That's just the bathtub with the shower head running. Nope, it's the Wacky Waterfall. It's the shower, Dad. Waterfall. Wacky. There's an easier way to save. To get a free rate quote, go to Geico.com. Then buy online, over the phone, or at your local Geico office. The Adidas Barricade 6 provides superior cushioning, support, and stability. Maximum durability is backed by a six-month guarantee. The choice of ATP professional Andy Murray, the Barricade 6 is the perfect shoe for the competitive player who needs to play at the highest level. The Adidas Barricade 6, the ultimate hardcore shoe. Available at TennisWarehouse.com, the ultimate equipment website. Final segment of Passing Shots presented by Pro 10 International in association with the MLJ Group. Pete Zebron with Sandy Middleman. And Sandy, we ended our last segment talking about a couple of finals that uh, took place on the WTA tour on Sunday. And we had a couple of ATP finals as well. All Spanish affairs, all Spanish encounters. We're going to start by talking about Guillermo Garcia Lopez, Spaniard over countryman Marcel Granollers in... Uh, in Casablanca, Morocco, and uh, three-set win for Garcia Lopez, 5-7, I've seen him play in person before, and he just crushes the ball, and uh, he's on his uh, favorite surface, obviously, like all the Spaniards, Clay. Your, your thoughts on uh, the game of Guillermo Garcia Lopez, Sandy? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, like he's, <laughs> he's just one of those guys that kind of comes out with dirt time, you know? Get the get the dirt tournaments going, and all of a sudden this guy gets full of confidence, even though he hasn't won a match or many matches in forever. He hasn't been talked about, and uh, yeah, he steps up to the plate, and you know suddenly it's I don't know, it's kind of like um, you know, kind of like he feels like he's in his living room or something. It's like weird how these guys just you know suddenly can play, um, and not only play, but they can play with confidence and belief, and kind of you know put the best players in the world and make them uncomfortable. But yeah, um, Renolias is like. He's an interesting player because he kind of plays very different than a lot of the Spanish players do. Actually, he um he likes to try to he has very simple backswings, not a not a ton of spin, likes to really try to take the ball earlier and actually be like more forward thinking and aggressive, and has been pretty known for being a very good doubles player. Um, so that actually is kind of a that's actually kind of an interesting match to begin with because you got Garcia Lopez who's known for, you know, ripping the ball heavy from the baseline. And, um, you know, you got that, uh, you got that one-handed backhand, um, which is, you know, hits that really well. And then you got Granola, who's it's kind of like sort of the grinder, but he's still on the clay courts, likes to do anything he can to try to do a little forward thinking and put the forward pressure on. Um, and, you know, excellent volleys and total comfort and confidence in the net. So, yeah, that's a, that was a pretty interesting match. And, um, 
you know, hey, great job to Garcia Lopez, you know, the clay court step up, and what does he do? He uh, comes to play and <laughs> comes through. So we'll see if that's sort of an omen for what may be coming up. You know, you never know, right? Um, but you and I always talk about what's the, what's the key component? Consistency, week to week. <laughs> so yes, yes so we, it is. we laugh at that, but, you know, that's the way it is. So. Well, the Spaniards are going to get plenty of match play coming up uh, the next month and a half or so uh, and uh, on, on their favorite surface. You look at any draw coming up, and, uh, boy, about uh, a quarter or a third of the draw are going to be Spaniards. Amazing. And they've all earned their way into that draw, Sandy, as well. And we just had our U.S. Clay Court uh, Championship Tournament here in the United States in Houston last week, um, just like in uh, – in Casablanca, Paris Spaniards in the final. In this case, uh, Fernando Verdasco uh, defeating countryman Nicolas Almagro, uh, 6-3, 7-6-4 in the tiebreaker. And uh, a couple things jump out at me for that. Almagro has been on the shelf for a while, coming back from an injury. He took out three Americans on his way to the final. Uh, beat Michael Russell, beat Jack Sock, and actually got a walkover from, from Sam Query, who got to the uh, – got to the uh, semis there, Sandy. But um, Verdasco, interesting, uh, you know, tough customer. We, we all remember that marathon match he played against Nadal in Australia. Uh, I actually saw him uh, in a marathon three-set match against Nadal in Cincinnati. It went three hours, 39 minutes. Uh, uh, Verdasco on the short end of that. But uh, obviously, point here, point there, he can, he can play very, very well against uh, Rafael Nadal. And, uh, in fact, I think he beat him. The only time he beat him, I think, was when uh, they had the blue clay in uh, in Madrid that one time. But uh, he did get the win. But Verdasco, uh, a new coach in his camp as well. And um, your thoughts on what we might see going forward, what a win like this can do uh, for Fernando Verdasco coming into the clay season. Yeah, absolutely, Pete. I mean, you know, listen, everybody knows what uh, what Fernando's sort of you know, pedigree and background is with the, you know, being you know an elite player, uh, you know big time player, giving fits to the best players, having that incredible uh, massive lefty forehand when it's uh, when it's flowing, um, I think um, you know quite honestly I think a, a bit of a bit of Fernando's sort of challenges in recent times have been you know um, I just think that he's just not quite as maybe smooth as some of the elite other players where he has to physically maybe work a little bit harder for some things, um, but, you know, look, anytime you win a tournament, I mean, and look, you know, Houston's not the, Houston's not sort of the, necessarily the strongest field, but at the same time, you know, you beat a guy like El Magro, uh, I mean, that guy can play some ball, that guy can hit a heavy ball, and that, that guy, that guy's backhand is like, if you, you know, if any kid has a one-handed backhand and it looks anything like El Magro's, I mean, you're talking, um, that thing can uh, cash a few checks if you know what I'm talking about. So um, yeah, and a great you know great win. And look, listen, we all know it's no secret when you get to the tour level. I mean, these guys are all good friends, right? Especially the Spaniards. Okay, they know each other like forever, and it's just never easy to go out there and play each other. A because they're such good friends. B because they're on that surface and they know how tough each other are. And then last but not least is. They practice all the time. There's absolutely no secrets. I mean, there's nothing to, you know, nothing to kind of bring out after all these years. Oh, that's new, you know. Never going to happen. So, really, it just comes down to the day. And Vernasco got through it, which is great for him. And, yeah, we'll see. I mean, is it going to translate, like you said, 
to down the road, you know, and some big results in bigger tournaments against the best players, best of five, that's a little different conversation yet to be seen. But nevertheless, at the end of the day, you and I are both pretty well aware of the fact that a win is a win at the end of the day. Indeed. Your your thoughts, you know, Verdesco recently, uh, like so many other players right now at the top, are, are bringing uh, older but former players who've had success on the ATP tour into their camps. And Verdesco brought in uh, Thomas Engfist. You're, uh, what do you, what do you make of that particular move, Sandy? Uh, I'm a little, I'm a little stumped at that one to be, I, look, I, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to sit here and be critical and, you know, sound like, okay, that's a, you know, how can I be the one that says that that's like a crazy move? First of all, and Chris could have been, like, you know, coaching many players, like, recently that we just don't know about and actually helping a lot of players develop. Who knows what he's been doing? Because he really hasn't been around, you know, sort of noticeably around the tennis scene or talked about for quite a long time. Um, but, look, um, you know, Tom, Tomas was a great player, unbelievable success, great career. And, you know, at this point for Verdasco, quite honestly, it may just come down to one thing having a totally fresh voice and fresh face in the, you know, that, you know, uh, sees something in him, knows his results, knows his history, and believes he's got one more, you know, possibly period of time of one more good run at the big time. And, you know, at that stage, Pete, the, the sort of the coaching dynamic between a coach and a player at that level where Fernando is now and has been and what he's maybe trying to redo before, you know, it's time to move on to a different life okay, the life after tennis, is it honestly may just be that somebody like Tomas Anklis just provides a different energy. But at the end of the day, a different energy, a positive attitude, you know, direction about maybe certain things that he hasn't accomplished yet that he could, you know, all that stuff. And look it, so far so good. <laughs> nothing to, you know, nothing bad to say, but yeah, we'll see because, Fernando's not going to inevitably, we, we both know, Fernando's not going to base anything. He, he'll be happy with the tournament win, feel great about that, that it's going in the right direction. But inevitably, when push comes to shove down the road, what is he looking for? He's looking for that, that feeling again of, I can play with the top 10, five guys, and not only play with them, but I'm capable of actually beating them and then contending for the big tournaments. And if he brings that, then it's a success. Yeah, and I, I wanted to uh, just ask how much, uh, how much uh, the fact that Verdesk has been playing and having success on the doubles court uh, recently. He's been playing a lot of doubles and you know, got a few wins as well. But uh, you think that this is factoring into uh, into you know this result that we've got better things for Verdesk coming up in the next couple of months. Yeah, I think Pete, it could be. I mean, you know, well, let's put it this way: it's more time on the court winning matches, gaining more confidence, you know, coming through, which is always a positive thing. And, you know, and quite honestly, I think Fernando's pretty skilled everywhere in the court. So the fact that he's being successful in doubles doesn't, you know, doesn't surprise me. Um, but, look, I think actually, to be honest with you, I think it's a lot like, you know, when you, when you talk to juniors about playing doubles and they don't play doubles and you say, oh, well, you know, you can go out there and play matches and you can work on stuff and, and then you'll feel confident about it because you're doing it in the match, and then you can take it in your singles. Um, I saw him playing, uh, you know, I saw him playing with Marrero, you know, obviously against the Bryans. I mean, and he was he was confident, you know what I mean? He was comfortable out there coming up the net. So yeah, 
it's all good. I mean, I, I'm listen. The guy is good for the game, you know, because he's a name. Everybody knows his name. He's had he's had big time results at the biggest of levels, and he's challenged the best players that have played the game. And yeah, it's just great to have him sort of back in the conversation. That's that's great. Yep, indeed. We'll uh, we'll see how he he does going forward and. With that, we're coming to the end of our show, Sandy. But uh, quick question: I'm I'm going to. We talked about this match a little bit earlier. I'm going to go with uh, Roger Federer over Stepanek with the scoreline of six four six three. Your thoughts on that match for tomorrow? I'm going to go on the scoreline of Roger Federer over Roddick Stefanik, and I'm going to go with seven six six two. And the score in the breaker, please. Oh, I knew you were going to push me to the limits. <laughs> Uh, scoring the breaker, 7-3. Okay, there you have it. And uh, Roger Federer and Roddick Stepanek up, second up on center court tomorrow in Monaco. And check now on Thursday. All the uh, quarterfinals from Friday will be set. The quarterfinals from Monday. by the Radio Network in association with the MLJ Group. Good night and God bless. Folks. <laughs>